You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. In America, no one should be guaranteed success, but everyone should have a fair chance to succeed. Everyone should have a chance to go as high and as far in life as their willingness to work, their dedication, and their talent will take them. And that means they gotta have a chance in life through good education, good nutrition, good care, all of the things that we want for my kids. If we set a standard that said, every other kid should have in life what we want for our kids, we couldn't have a better public policy than that. I think the senator's vision has grown. One of the things I've learned working closely with the senator is he continues to learn all the time. He wanted us to have a program that was going to support Maine students to achieve and to aspire, and at the same point understand what the opportunities are for them to come back to Maine. And so I started this program where last January I went back to my high school and I spoke in small groups to over 400 students and kind of gave them a chance to ask me questions one-on-one and explained what different opportunities there are out there that they, as Gardner Area High School students, are perfectly capable of achieving. It's really about aspirations. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 113 airing for the first time on Sunday, November 10th, 2013. Today's show is called Making Peace. The Dalai Lama once said, The only true guardian of peace lies within a sense of concern and responsibility for your own future and an altruistic concern for the well-being of others. The guests on today's show include individuals who fulfill these criteria and are true guardians of peace. Maine's former Senator George Mitchell, Meg Baxter, President and CEO of the Mitchell Institute, and Ethan Pierce, Mitchell Institute Scholar. We hope you enjoy our conversations with them and are inspired to reflect upon the ways in which you may be a guardian of peace in your own life. Thank you for joining us. It's not often that I get to sit across the microphone from someone who has had such uh, an interesting part in the making of history over the last several decades. And today is one of those days I feel really fortunate to be in the studio with Senator George Mitchell, who is, like me, a Bowdoin College graduate and also, like me, a Mainer, um, born and raised initially in Waterville. So I'm really, I don't know, very honored that you took time out of your extremely busy schedule and came in and you're here to talk to us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure for me. I appreciate your having me on your show. 
I feel like I have some also kindredness to you and your family because I'm the oldest of 10 children. I know that you come from a relatively large for the time family also, Catholic family in Waterville. You have, let's see, four siblings, is that right? One, you have four siblings, one has passed away? I have three older brothers, one of whom passed away, and a younger sister, five in all. So I'm wondering how that worked into this life that you've made for yourself of sort of being in the middle of conflict. It was a very important and formative part of my life. Uh, I tell the story often, uh, humorously, but uh, uh, with serious intent, that uh, I owe everything to my brothers because uh, growing up in Waterville, my three older brothers were very prominent athletes very good athletes. My brother Johnny led Waterville High School to the New England High School Basketball Championships in 1944. Uh, The only team from Maine ever to have won that tournament when all six New England states were participating. My two other brothers, uh, Paul the oldest and Robbie uh, after Johnny, were also very prominent athletes. And I came along and I was not as good as my brothers. In fact, I was not as good as anybody else's brother. And I became known around town as uh, Johnny Mitchell's kid brother, the one who isn't any good. As you might expect, I developed a massive inferiority complex and a highly competitive attitude toward my brothers, uh, which continues to this day. We have a great family, loving relationship, but it's competitive. I'm driving to Waterville uh, later and going to see my brothers and uh, talk with them about our past exploits, uh, theirs mostly in sports, and they, of course, ribbed me for being such a lousy athlete. So uh, from that competition uh, developed a determination from the inferiority complex, uh, developed a desire to succeed and to move forward. And so uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I don't know about your family background, but uh, my uh, mother was an immigrant to the United States from Lebanon. Uh, She came in when she was 18 years old. My father was the orphan son of Irish immigrants. His parents had been born in Ireland, came here, but he never knew his parents. He was raised in an orphanage in Boston. After several years in the orphanage, he was adopted by an elderly couple from Maine who ended up settling in Waterville. And they found themselves next door to my mother, whose uh, sister had preceded her as an immigrant and who had also settled in Waterville. Uh, My mother couldn't read or write. Uh, She worked uh, nights in textile mills in central Maine for all of her adult life, uh, 11 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning. My father left school after the third or fourth grade, we're not quite sure, and worked a lifetime of hard labor, and he ended up as a janitor at Colby College. Uh, So uh, from my parents, uh, uh, I learned uh, uh, that hard work is necessary and pays off. From my earliest days, I worked at a variety of jobs. I worked my way through Bowdoin. Uh, My parents had no money to afford my going to Bowdoin, but Bowdoin helped me out by uh, arranging for me to have several jobs. So I worked pretty much full-time while I was at Bowdoin, a variety of jobs. And then after service in the Army, uh, overseas, I returned and went to law school and uh, in Washington at Georgetown University, and they had a night school, so I worked full time during the day. 
So uh, uh, out of that, uh, as you know, from an even larger family, out of that competition comes uh, a drive and a desire to excel and uh, uh, to do the best you can at whatever you do. And I, I have to say, you said very kind things about me, but you've been remarkably successful in your life coming from a large family, 10 in, uh, here in southern Maine. And uh, congratulations to you for all of that. And it's, uh, you, you mentioned you're, you're honored to have me on. Well, I'm honored to be on your show. Well, we'll, we'll have this mutual admiration society yeah. going on as we're talking. The, um, the story that you gave about Robbie during the book that you wrote, Making Peace, which was um, regarding the Northern Ireland Peace Accord, it, it really, um, it was kind of at the same time touching, but also very telling. You mentioned that, of course, his wife Janet had called while you were sort of in the thick of things, and it, it looked like um, things were going poorly, his health was bad. And you remembered a time that he had gotten the concession to work as a janitor or cleaning in a couple of different locations. And what he would do was sit and talk on the phone for an hour or two hours, and you would be the one cleaning the classrooms or the office space. And he said to you, well, you know, I'm management. This is why I'm making more money, and this is why you're doing what you're doing. And you said, well, someday I want to be management then. My brother Robert was a great guy, uh, a real entrepreneur. He died uh, in his 60s uh, from uh, leukemia, uh, and we all miss him very, very much. Uh, I still see his uh, family quite often. I yesterday had lunch with one of his daughters and uh, her husband. Uh, but uh, I learned a lot from him. Very early in life, he became an entrepreneur, almost incredibly when you think about it. Uh, he uh, had a variety of businesses while in high school. One of them was the, the jobs you talked about. He got what he called the concessions, that is a contract to do the janitorial work at first the Waterville Boys Club uh, and then a, a state office, a state agency office, which was next door to the Boys Club in Waterville. And he said to me, uh, uh, if you help out, I'll split the proceeds with you. And I said, that's great. I already had a number of jobs, and this would mean a lot. So I did all of the cleaning, everything. The one thing you didn't mention was the toughest part, cleaning all of the latrines in the boys' club. That's when I knew I wanted to get an education and not have to spend the rest of my life cleaning the bathrooms in the boys' club. And then I would go down next door and clean the state agency office. Meantime, um, Robbie, uh, the entrepreneur, would sit at the director's desk at the boys' club, call his girlfriend, who later became his wife, and talk on the phone for a couple of hours. Uh, the first week, he gave me a $2.50 each for the two cleaning jobs I was doing, and I thought that was terrific. Months later, I found out inadvertently, completely inadvertently, that he was being paid $15 a week for each. So he was getting 30 giving me 5 and keeping 25 and I did all the work. When I confronted him with it, he said, what you just quoted, he said, look, I'm management, your labor. I got the concession. Without me, you wouldn't have a job, so be thankful for what you've got. He, had, he did a number of other things. For example, while he was still in high school, he bought a cotton candy machine. And uh, in the summers, you know, one of the jobs I had, he hired me and a friend of mine. Uh, he would take the cotton candy machine on a pickup truck. He'd, he'd rent a pickup truck 
have someone drive it with a cotton candy machine and the two of us boys to a fair. We would go to all the, you know, the, in Maine in the summer, there's a fair almost every week. In, in the area of central Maine, we went to Winthrop Fair, to the Skowhegan Fair, to the fairs all around. He would find and uh, rent a space somewhere on the fairgrounds. And uh, this friend of mine, his name was Ronnie Stevens, and I would be there all day selling cotton candy. It's a very profitable business. And he paid us $2 a day. Uh, and one time, after a particularly long, hard day in which we took in a lot of cash, when, when we were picked up, my friend Ronnie said to Robbie, he said, Robbie, uh, we're doing all the work. Look at all this money we're giving you. Don't you think you should pay us more than $2 a day? And Robbie said, well, you know, now that you got me thinking about it, he said, I've got to pay for the pickup truck. I've got a mortgage on the cotton candy machine. We didn't know what a mortgage was. It sounded impressive. He said, I have to pay for that. He said, I have to pay a lot of taxes. He said, I don't think I can afford to give you guys $2 a day. How about $1 a day? Well, I pulled Ronnie back. I said, no, 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 Robbie, we'll, we'll, we'll take two, we'll take two. He started another job. He opened a golf driving range just outside of Waterville. All of this while in high school, he promoted sports events. He promoted entertainment events. He brought to Waterville, then one of the most famous circus clown acts in the country, a guy named Emmett Kelly, long since passed on. So he was a great guy, a real entrepreneur, someone I learned a lot from and someone I truly loved. We shared a, uh, a bedroom together for most of our growing up with seven people in a pretty small house in Waterville. And so I, I spent many an hour listening to Robbie at night. Uh, he would lull me to sleep, not with lullabies, but with stories. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Making peace with your finances is easier said than done. We have spent a lifetime being programmed by our beliefs and behaviors interacting with our inherited nature. Making peace with all of that is one of the biggest steps forward you can take. It's a step that can certainly remove a lot of anxiety from your life. Consider this scenario that a lot of us have gone through, or that you may be going through right now. You have money to support yourself and your family, but it's not always there at the right time. Or you don't believe that you can access it. That happened to me recently and also in a big way in 2008. Like you, I have experienced these financial highs and lows. It feels as though you're on some kind of a strange roller coaster and that you're constantly wrestling with what you want versus what you need. You've got bills and really want to pay them off. You're sort of living in the past so you can move forward. Finding peace in the middle of our culture can make it difficult to make good financial decisions, especially if you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. The first step is to stop and breathe. Look around. Walk around. Talk to people. Trade and commerce are going to happen. Money is what makes it easier. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, and we will help you evolve with your money peacefully. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial 
are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. something from your book, Senator Mitchell, and it really is, um, I think, good background for people who don't know that much about Northern Ireland. And I must admit, I have Irish in my background, but I don't know as much about Northern Ireland as I probably should. Northern Ireland is an advanced modern society. Its people are productive, literate, articulate. But for all its modernity and literacy, Northern Ireland has been divided by a deep and ancient hatred into two hostile communities, their enmity burnished by centuries of conflict. They have often inflicted hurt, physical and psychological, on members of the other community, and they have been quick to take offense at real or perceived slights. They have a highly developed sense of grievance. As one of the participants in the talks later said to me, to understand us, Senator, you must realize that we in Northern Ireland will drive 100 miles out of our way to receive an insult. Each is a minority, Catholics in Northern Ireland, Protestants on the island of Ireland. Each sees itself as a victim community constantly under siege, the recipient of a long litany of violent blows from the other. This seems to be a theme that you've encountered in lots of different places, also when you were the envoy to the Middle East. Um, this deep-seated pain that just goes back generations and generations. And is it that listening that you've described that enables you to sort of at least hear the pain from the people so that they know that you have an idea of where they're coming from? Yes, a root cause of human conflict in different parts of the world and different eras of history is a profound sense of victimization on the part of people. They believe they have been victimized by the other side. And we humans are so capable of rationalization that once you persuade yourself that you are a victim, you are then able to take actions that you otherwise might not take. It justifies things that you wouldn't otherwise do, the sense of victimization. And that is a very important key to unlocking any conflict, to understanding the origins, sources, and continuing reasons for that sense of victimization. Uh, here's a good example of it. When President Clinton made his first trip to Northern Ireland, I arranged the visit for him. And on the first night, after a long day of travel, uh, late at night, we met with the leaders of the two opposing factions, Jerry Adams representing the nationalist or Catholic side, Dr. Ian Paisley representing the Protestant or Unionist side. And uh, the president was tired, I was tired. We said hello, and the first one was with Paisley. He launched into a 30-minute statement 
literally 30 minutes he spoke uninterrupted, and it was entirely a history of Northern Ireland as seen through the eyes of a Protestant, and it was 100% a recitation of the bad things that Catholics had done to Protestants. There was not a glimmer of recognition that there might have been something going the other way. And then when he left, Jerry Adams came in and delivered the mirror image of that from the Catholic side, an uninterrupted 30-minute statement of the grievances, the terrible things that had happened to Catholics at the hands of Protestants. And again, no recognition whatsoever, no acknowledgment that it might have been two ways. And it's a clear indication, evidence where none is needed, that victimization is a driving force in conflict. And you have to understand it, you have to address it, and you have to figure out a way to deal with it if you have any hope of resolving these conflicts. And the reality, again, in human affairs is, while it's not always 50-50, it's very rare that it's all one way. That is, most times people have, there are some bases for grievance. Uh, but what you've got to open them up to is the reality that the other side has grievances too. And you have to find a way ultimately, and this is the most difficult task, to have not just individuals but the society as a whole put the past behind it and look to the future. The truth is, you can't resolve or satisfy every grievance. You can't bring comfort to every person who suffered. What you must try to do is learn from those tragic experiences and develop a way to avoid repetition of them among others in the future. It's a very, very hard thing to do, and many people can't do it. After we got the peace agreement in Northern Ireland, the governments asked me to come back to participate in the effort to gain voter approval. The agreement was subject to a referendum in both Ireland and Northern Ireland and would take effect only if approved by a majority of voters in a free, open, democratic election. Both ultimately did approve it. In the course of the campaign, the governments asked me to meet with the families and survivors of victims of the conflict. These were women whose husbands and sons had been murdered, people whose families had been killed by bombs, a lot of assassination and gruesome killing had occurred. And they thought that the men, mostly men, a few women who had perpetrated these acts were criminals. But the men and women who had perpetrated the acts thought of themselves as freedom fighters. They constantly compared themselves to George Washington's army at Valley Forge. So one man's freedom fighter is another man's murderer. And I met with the families and tried to explain to them that the peace agreement included provisions for the early release of some of the prisoners, not immediate, but they had a process by which they could get out before the full term of their sentences. And the families found that hard to accept. They still do. I don't think I ever persuaded any one of them to support the agreement, but I think I was able to get them to understand why it was important to move forward for the society as a whole so that other women in the future would not be sitting where they were sitting, having lost their husbands 
or their sons or their daughters to the conflict. And it's, it, you are absolutely correct to identify that as one of the key elements of conflict and one that must be addressed. First, by understanding, and that means sympathetic listening, genuinely hearing what they have to say. I sat for hours and listened to these families describe the incidents that led to the death of their loved ones. Being sympathetic to it, at the same time trying to make the case that you, you simply cannot expect that a conflict will go on and somehow bring relief to everyone. What it will do will be to bring more grief to others, and that's the way to end it. It, it was interesting um, to notice that you ended up setting deadlines, and that ended up being kind of, I think that ended up being fairly effective. Either we are going to do this by this date, or we're not going to do this by this date. And it, from my understanding, it worked in the Northern Ireland case. It didn't work as well with the Middle East. That's right. It's a risk. There's no doubt about it. In Northern Ireland, it was an act of desperation. The process was failing. We'd been at it for nearly two years. A, the murder of a uh, Protestant paramilitary leader in prison by a group of Catholic prisoners two days after Christmas in 1997 had touched off a retaliatory series of assassinations. Bombings, the conflict was accelerating. The ceasefires had been shredded. Uh, and I felt that the process was in a state of terminal decline and would be overwhelmed by the violence uh, unless we did something dramatic. And so it was on a flight from uh, Dublin, Ireland, back to the United States in mid-February of 1998 that I devised a plan for an early, unbreakable deadline. Uh, it was hard to do. I had to convince all of the parties, the 10 political parties and the two governments, to agree to it because I had no power to impose anything upon them. But I made the case that uh, uh, you have to act. It is a risk. And, and there were several quite articulate opponents to my plan, primarily government officials who had lived with this conflict for years and who were desperately afraid of it resuming again. What's called the Troubles actually was a, a, a series of periodic outbreaks of violence. And uh, since we don't, we don't like to acknowledge this, but in human affairs, uh, technology has advanced more rapidly in the ability of people to kill each other than in almost any other area. Uh, each time violence broke out, it was at a higher level, more people being killed. Right today, one person with very little resources can manufacture a bomb that can kill dozens, hundreds of people. So you don't need large numbers, you don't need large amounts of money, uh, and it, it, it's, it's become really very difficult to control, as you can see from the news around the world today. So uh, in the end, you have to try to work it out and you have to adapt to the circumstances. After we got the peace agreement, many reporters said to me, Senator, you, this took nearly two years. You ended it when you called the deadline. Why didn't you establish a deadline 12 months ago or 18 months ago? I said, if I had, it wouldn't have worked. I said, it was just the time, and it was an act of desperation. And, and as I described in my book, down to almost the last minute, it was right on the edge, and it could just as easily have failed as succeeded. The credit really goes to the political leaders of Northern Ireland. 
men and women of enormous courage who had spent their lifetimes in conflict, ordinary people just like us, but who rose to the occasion. Partially out of fear, they were very, very frightened because they knew if they failed, the conflict would resume immediately with deadly consequences for both sides. Uh, they knew that the amount of killing would increase significantly and that the violence would be f far more savage than it had been in the past. Uh, and so they did it. And it's fashionable in our country, in most countries, particularly in democracies, to ridicule politicians, to make fun of them, to insult them, to assume the worst of them, and some of it's deserved. But there are many people in public life who are there for the right reasons, and when they meet in the intersection of history and conflict, are able to do the right thing for the right reasons and get the right result. And, and those were the political leaders of Northern Ireland at the time. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When asked, most of my clients say the same thing about what keeps them up at night. Money. Making certain cash flow is there to meet day-to-day -day operational needs. Oh my gosh, is payroll going to be able to make it? When we dig deeper, we understand that those sleepless nights are symptoms of poor planning and forecasting. And more often than not, the reasons for not doing it are a lack of time and a lack of resources. So here's a suggestion. Instead of living in fear of the numbers and losing sleep over them, make peace with them by paying closer attention to the financials and creating positive cash flow. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport, or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. So as somebody who was born in 1933, which was the last century, and in between two wars and in a very different time, what types of things have you learned um, over the course of your life that you would like your kids to take away as your legacy? They're pretty much the things we've talked about uh, up to now. Uh, first, uh, patience, be patient with people. Uh, I myself was for a long time an impatient person, uh, young, ambitious, aggressive, uh, 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 not paying enough attention, not listening carefully enough to what others were saying, not just through their words, but through their actions. We're all human. We all make mistakes. Uh, 
not one of us uh, achieves our aspirations every day. Uh, we all fail. Uh, the important thing is to try, and when you do fail, to resolve to do better the next time, even knowing that perfection is limited to the Lord above and doesn't exist in any human being. So be patient with others, be understanding uh, of someone who has difficulties. Uh, in, in the case of my children, they lead a life vastly different from mine. And, and the real challenge is, how do you not do everything for them so that they develop a sense of self-reliance, a sense of independence, a, a sense of worth, what, it, what are things worth? Uh, that's a hard challenge, uh, I think in many respects tougher than the opposite. When I was a kid growing up, nobody ever said we all have to work. It was part of life. Everybody understood it. Uh, my parents were very poor. Um, as I said earlier, my mother couldn't read or write. My father had a very limited education. But they had a, a very firm belief that uh, uh, in this country, if their kids had a decent education, they could get ahead. So although my parents died without wealth, they had succeeded. They were wealthy in the sense of success in accomplishing their objective of having their, all of their children go on, go to college, and do much better in life than anyone could have imagined at the time, myself included, and my brothers and my sister. And so how do you instill in children uh, a sense of uh, uh, a commitment to hard work, to, to dedication, not just in studies, but also in work and in life generally, and at the same time, a sense of compassion and empathy for those who don't uh, don't have it. Uh, one of the most formative periods of my life was my senior year in high school. I was 16 years old. I graduated from high school when I was 16. Uh, very insecure. Uh, I'd never been anywhere. My parents didn't own a car. Uh, really had never accomplished anything. Uh, younger and smaller than most of my classmates. And in that year, my father lost his job. Uh, it was a disaster like nothing I'd ever experienced before or since. Uh, he uh, was not educated, but he was an intelligent man. He was a very proud man. And it had a devastating effect upon his self-esteem. Uh, and it had a devastating effect on me. My three older brothers were gone. They were in college. There was no talk of my going to college because it seemed out of the, completely out of range given my father's circumstance. And uh, uh, that year nearly destroyed him. And it, 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 it had a tremendous profound effect on me. Uh, I was very lucky. I ended up uh, going to Bowdoin, getting a lot of help there. And thank God my father got a job. After a year, he got a job as a janitor at Colby College. Now people would say now, being a janitor, that's no big deal, but I have to tell you that job saved his life. It saved his life, it saved his self-esteem. He finally was a productive member of society. One of the problems in our country now is, in my judgment, there is not enough attention paid in public policy to trying to generate 
economic growth and job creation and employment for our citizens. Too much attention paid to a lot of other things that I think, while maybe important, aren't as important as that. And there also has to be an understanding, and I, I used to really bristle with anger and had to control myself, contain myself, when I'd hear people ridicule, insult, make fun of people who are unemployed. Some of whom may have been cheats. That's true in every society. You're a doctor, there are doctors who cheat. I'm a lawyer, there are lawyers who cheat. So yes, there are people who cheat on unemployment, but the vast majority are men and women just like my father, desperate for work, desperate to do something to regain their self-esteem, their sense of self-worth, to be able to look themselves in the mirror and look in their children's eyes. My father couldn't look into my eyes during that year. He always looked away. I don't think I heard him laugh for nine or ten months. It was just tough, and, and it, it's tough on people now. And so if, if I have a message or a lesson, it's that to those who are young and healthy, the best source of satisfaction in life is work. Do something meaningful and be good at it and work hard at it, and good things will happen to you. To those who are successful, you have to remember where you came from and remember we're all one family, we're one community, and we have to be understanding and sympathetic of those less fortunate than we are and do our best to help them, not through a handout, but making it possible for them to have the same opportunity as everyone. I'll close with these words. In America, no one should be guaranteed success, but everyone should have a fair chance to succeed. Everyone should have a chance to go as high and as far in life as their willingness to work, their dedication, and their talent will take them. And that means they've got to have a chance in life through good education, good nutrition, good care, all of the things that we want for my kids. If we set a standard that said every other kid should have in life what we want for our kids, we couldn't have a better public policy than that. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Senator Mitchell. It's really been a privilege, and um, I can I can say that Bowdoin has done well by making sure that you got your early education, and your family has done well by making sure that you were raised with this sense of competition that has brought you as far as it has. I appreciate your being with us today. Thank you. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. One of the things that I've found particularly interesting about this season that's just passing now is that people are dealing with end-of-life issues with their parents and with loved ones in a way that I've not seen before in this number. What I'm finding is that people want to create a beautiful space for themselves to sort of reflect, remember, share their life experiences, and do some deep introspective work because we start to realize as we age that we only have so much time left and we want to really enjoy that time in a place that we deem to be sacred and special for us and our family and our loved ones. So that's really what I find myself doing most often is working with people to try to create these spaces that really start to 
get them to think deeper about what their calling is in life. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour know that our listeners understand the importance of the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Bullier, a premier sports health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Making peace with your body. How is it done? We start by getting more rest, eating right, and exercising. But when those things do not end the war, we must look for a little help. Black Bear Medical wants to be the United Nations for your body. Our home medical equipment, medical supplies, daily living aids, and sports health products provide that added security to help you be a better you. Let us empower your body to make peace with itself and work as one unit so you can live your life the way you want to. Visit us at blackbearmedical.com, like us on Facebook, and see what products and advice we can offer you or someone you care about. Black Bear Medical. It's your life. Define it your way. Not only are we fortunate to have Maine's former Senator George Mitchell joining us today, but we also have with us Meg Baxter, President and CEO of the Mitchell Institute, and Ethan Pierce, Mitchell Institute Scholar. Meg Baxter's nonprofit career has spanned four decades, with the majority of her work conducted in Maine. She is a passionate advocate for the nonprofit sector and the people and communities served by it. In 2001, Meg was named President and CEO of the Mitchell Institute. Senator George Mitchell's Scholarship and Research Institute. In that role, she oversees the distribution of four-year scholarships to a senior at every one of Maine's 129 public high schools. At any one time, there are over 500 Mitchell scholars in post-secondary institutions. The Institute provides mentoring, fellowships, and leadership development to its scholars and alumni. Ethan Pierce is a 2009 Mitchell scholar from Gardner, Maine, and a May 2014 degree candidate in Harvard's University and a May 2014 degree candidate in Harvard University's Visual and Environmental Studies Department, studying studio art and art history. Thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Ethan, we were lucky to have you because you're pretty busy these days um, studying at Harvard and getting your life on the, the right track. So tell me what's been going on for you. So uh, I'm in my senior year at Harvard, which involves a lot of applications, and um, I just recently got back from my second summer in in Berlin, Germany. Um, I was working over there as an intern at a contemporary art gallery, Um, and so a lot of those uh, applications are hopefully, well, hopefully one of them will get me back to Germany next year, which is pretty exciting. Well, that is exciting because you've gone from Gardner, Maine to Berlin, Germany, and all, I think, helped or at least in part helped by your scholarship through the Mitchell Institute. The Mitchell Institute has been an absolutely incredible support all along my my path. Um, I, I first became aware of them uh, my senior year of high school, and I wasn't really sure. I, I kind of looked at it as this pot of, of, of potential scholarship money because I really did not know how I was going to pay for one of these $50,000 a year college educations. Um, and I was just so blessed to find out that it was so much more than that. Um, they really provide an absolutely incredible network of support um, and resources that, that goes far beyond that, that pool of money. Well, Meg, tell me about that. You've been with the Mitchell Institute for 
a year, year and a half now. That's right. You've been working on all these scholarships for our Maine students. Um, what is that all about? Well, it's all thanks to Senator Mitchell's vision. When he left the Senate, he had a pot of campaign money that he wanted to use to do something good. And several years before, he had attended a conference in Orono on the lack of aspirations of Maine high school students. And that troubled him, as as many of us know, his own story is, is just remarkable in terms of how he ended up at Bowdoin and how he ended up to be such a wonderful national and international treasure. And he used the money to start a scholarship program. And over time, that scholarship endowment has grown to the point where we now are able to name a Mitchell Scholar at every one of the 129 public high schools in Maine. And as Ethan mentioned, it starts with the scholarship. Now, I'm happy to say, we uh, the scholarship is $1,500 a year for four years. But we do so much more than the money, thanks to the, the growth of our endowment and our fundraising. We are able to provide so many more support to our scholars, including the, the fact that we have a fellowship program that we are able to give to both our, our scholars and alumni that helps support their personal and professional growth. And I think Ethan would be happy to tell you about the fellowship he received that enabled him to go to Germany. Yeah, so two years ago, I, I was a Mitchell Fellow, um, and and that support helped me to um, work with a, a contemporary painter in Germany for the summer. I was working with Anne Neukamp and studying at Das Goethe Institute, which is a language program over there. Um, and before that, I had had an interest in Germany and studied about it, but it was really a life-changing moment for me. Um, to be immersed in that culture and, and sort of the art scene and to see all of the things that I was reading and studying about. Um, and, and I couldn't have done that without the support of the Mitchell Institute. Both of you are interesting in that you're both first-generation college, well, one soon-to-be graduates, one graduate. Um, what did that mean within your families and for you personally? For me, it meant that my mother's dreams were fulfilled because she had emigrated from Canada and it was really important to her that of her seven children some of us would go on to maintain to, to obtain a college degree and I think her pride has lasted to this day she's 92 years old and I think it's a, it's a source of pride for her that four of her children are now college graduates. For me and for my family I think my sister is also a college graduate um, and just to see all of us kind of using um, all of the available resources out there and, and not only making our own way, but helping to support um, our families, our cousins, my younger brothers, and like showing them um, a path to achieve whatever aspirations they might have. I think that's been really powerful. And obviously, you agreed to come here to talk about your experiences with the Mitchell Institute, even though I know that you're very busy at Harvard. I, I assume you're doing some things within your community as well to promote the education that you've received and promote um, sort of higher learning. It's really important to me. Um, having been given so much, um, to find a way to, to give that back. And so actually, uh, this past year, I started this Aspiration Maine program. Um, the vision really came in so many ways from the Mitchell Institute and, and what they've provided to all of these scholars over the years. And I wanted to find a way that I, as a college student, 
as this young person without any, you know, financial means, I can't give out a $6,000 scholarship to every, to 129 high school students every year. But what I can do, yet, yet. (laughs) but what I can do is I can provide them with all of the information that I wish I knew when I was in high school. Because there's so much that I've learned, so many uh, resources that I've learned about um, different funding opportunities to go spend a summer or a few weeks at a college while you're in high school or to, to go abroad. There are these international internship programs for high school students. Um, and I really think that Mainers can be competitive for those things. And even beyond that, just to know about the financial aid opportunities at, at these different colleges. Um, like Harvard, for example, is almost $60,000 a year now. But if your parents make less than $60,000 a year, you do not, your parents have no um, sort of, that there's a full financial aid coverage of that, of your parents' portion of that bill, which is truly, truly incredible. Um, And there are a number of institutions out there like that. And so to be able to pass information like that onto these students, um, it's really powerful. And so I started this program where last January I went back to my high school and I spoke in small groups to over 400 students and kind of gave them um, a chance to ask me questions one-on-one and explained what different opportunities there are out there that they, as Gardner Area High School students, are perfectly capable of achieving. It's really about aspirations. Is this the type of thing that you think Senator George Mitchell was wanting to do when he set up this program, Meg? I think the senator's vision has has grown. One of the things I've learned working closely with the senator is he's amazing in so many ways, but he continues to learn all the time. And I think that he has learned that the programs that we are providing to support our scholars and alumni are as important as the scholarship. And in fact, he came last March, one of our leadership days is held out at, at Unum, where we do a lot of work around resume building and um, interviewing skills for the, the scholars who are getting ready to, to move out of school. And he came and spoke to the students about leadership. He sees that importance of the connection. And we're blessed to have a research director on staff. And she has been doing longitudinal studies of our scholars since we began. And she's able to track how they're doing, where they are. And we know that because of the programs that we provide to our scholars, we have a much higher persistence rate to graduation than the main average. Our scholars persist to graduation at a rate of about 85%, where the main average is about 54%. And I think the senator as well as the rest of us understand the importance of the check is the, quite frankly, the hook that we get the kids in with. And then we do a variety of programs and mentoring and support to make sure that we're keeping them on the path. And I think an important thing that I've learned since I've been a part of the Institute is, well, oftentimes that our students can patch together the money, there are unintended or unexpected costs that crop up and that we want to make sure that they can be helped with that. An example is a young woman who's in a nursing school at UMO. She based her very tight budget on the information that was in the college uh, the college booklet. And uh, so, and, and she had no margin for error. And when she got into her nursing program, whoops, the nursing books were 50% more. And so we want to be able to help the students as they hit those bumps because we have learned and national studies have shown it can be a simple bump like that that is simply enough to bump a a student out of school. So we're constantly in touch with our students and we're so proud that 
Uh, 90% of them are at school in Bowdoin. We have 10% that go to great places like Harvard, but they come back. And that's what's it. I think that was part of the senator's vision, that he wanted us to have a program that was going to support Maine students to achieve and to aspire, and at the same point, understand what the opportunities are for them to come back to Maine. And at the same time, your um, the Mitchell Institute also works with students who are going to school right here in Maine in our public university systems, such as the University of Maine. Absolutely. And the University of Maine at Orono has one of our highest cohorts of scholars, and they have been amazing, as all of our scholars are. And I think part of what has been such a, a learning for me is, as we go through the application process, how I get a view of Maine I hadn't seen before. I read all of the applications from Aroostook, Penobscot, and Lincoln County. And the differences that you learn about lifestyles, about career choices, are just amazing. But the the choices that the students make are oftentimes based on who has come before them, just as Ethan has said. And one of the things that we've been doing is trying to connect our students across the state so that they understand what the what's happening to other students. We just had a fabulous leadership weekend up in Millinocket two weekends ago. We're very thrilled that over the years Unum has been totally supportive of, 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 of funding that weekend. And we had 55 scholars from across uh, from across the state who came. And we actually had three students from outside the state, but the bulk of them were at UMO, University of Maine at Farmington. We had one from the University of Maine at Presque Isle, which I have now learned is referred to as UMPI, and um, every place else. And it was a wonderful weekend. And it gets back to uh, Ethan's comment a little earlier. We had a, a great consultant who Friday night talked to the students about asking for what you need or what you want. And that really resonated with our students because so many of them come, they're, they're typical Mainers. They're humble. They're hardworking. And oftentimes the hardest thing for us is to get them to ask. And so we always say, uh, our scholarship director, Jared Cash, will always say to the students, call us up and ask for coffee with no agenda. And we try to get the students in, and there's always an agenda, but it's great to get them in to talk to us because we can't we can't assist them and support them and mentor them if we don't know them. And this weekend was wonderful in terms of getting this great cross-section of students who now will support one another. And that support of one another is really one of the fundamental things um, that the Mitchell Institute provides. I think it was just this past weekend, actually, that one of my friends, Stephanie, at the Mitchell Institute sent me uh, a request on Facebook to join this new Mitchell Institute um, out-of-staters group. And so everyone has been chatting away on that and and saying where they're at and what they're doing and trying to connect. And that's sort of a branch off of the Mitchell Institute Scholars page, which has been really um, very alive since it was started last year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with people offering out different opportunities that are available, or uh, congratulating one another on getting into X Y Z program, and so that support and getting to meet these other scholars at these different events, um, like the Unum event um, or the gala, or or really any of these amazing sort of networking opportunities that the Mitchell Institute provides. That's been a fantastic resource as well. Meg, I'm certain that although there already was money and there is money now, I'm certain that you're always trying to um, enlist the support, the financial support and other support of people in the community. So how can people find out more about that? Or if you're a high school student looking to um, apply to be a Mitchell Scholar, how do you find out about that? They can go to our website, which is mitchellinstitute.org. And 
every high school, we're, we're actually doing outreach to about 20 different high schools this year, and that's our plan is to get to all the high schools over the next few years to make sure that as much as we hope that the Institute is well known, we want to take it to the ground. It's the, the same kind of thing that Ethan was saying, get in where the kids are and help them do that. So they can find out our application, which will be, um, it'll be live January 1, and the students can have to apply by April 1. And one thing I just want to say to students who are listening, pay really close attention to your essay because so many of our students are so close in terms of academic achievement and community impact that sometimes that personal essay is the definer in terms of really helping us understand who you are. So people can go to our website. We certainly would love financial support and that's available through the website. And I just wanna make sure that everybody understands that Senator Mitchell is deeply involved. Um, he may have said this and you, people may have heard him say that next to his family, this is the proudest thing he's ever accomplished, which to me is exceptionally humbling to be leading the organization when you think about all of the things that Senator Mitchell has done for this country and internationally. Well, I feel very humbled myself having had the chance to sit with both of you here today. And I'm just thrilled that, Ethan, you've taken the time to come up here from Harvard. I wish you all the best. And I'm certain that you will end up in the program of your choice. I know that I'll probably hear about you from Berlin as you're studying for your <laughs> master's and doing what you end up doing next. So thank you for coming and speaking with us today. We've been talking with Ethan Pierce, a 2009 Mitchell Scholar from Gardner, Maine, and a 2014 degree candidate in Harvard University's Visual and Environmental Studies Department. And also thank you, Meg, for all the work that you're doing with the Mitchell Institute, all the work you've done, I know, over your life with all of the boards and with United Way. Um, but I, I wish you all the best for the fundraising and outreach you're doing. Um, we've been talking with Meg Baxter, the president and CEO of the Mitchell Institute. Thanks for coming in. Thanks thank for letting you. us tell our story. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 113, Making Peace. Our guests have included Senator George Mitchell, Meg Baxter, and Ethan Pierce. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let your sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Making Peace show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a peaceful and bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Seabags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. 
Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.